Yeah. You didn't know I could do that. If only this story could be handled in a 30-minute episode. Now, that is not sharing with you that I'm going to be preaching a 45-minute sermon this morning. But there is nothing that is light about this story. Instead, it is dark and very disturbing. Nothing that you would ever find on the Andy Griffith Show. It is a puzzle not easily solved. Occasionally we hear in the news of the unthinkable. A parent takes the life of a child or children. Fortunately, this is not something that we hear about very often. But when it does occur, I know that your reaction is not unlike mine. You think to yourself, how could this be? How could a parent take the life of a child? And in fact, what I immediately go to in my thinking is that this is evidence of insanity. And it is born of pain. And it is distorted by this malevolent psychosis that somehow has embedded itself in the individual who does such a deed. All society would look on it in horror. In regard to this story with Abraham and Isaac, I strive to make it palatable. I focus in my mind on the angel's intervention and God's providing that ram who has hooked himself with those curly horns somehow in the thicket and hasn't been able to get loose. But at the very right moment, Abraham sees the opportunity to substitute the life of the ram for the life of Isaac. You know this occurred on Mount Moriah which is just a hair's breadth across the Kidron Valley from the Garden of Gethsemane. So you're getting a picture of where Mount Moriah is, are you not? Mount Moriah is where the Temple Dome is, the Dome of the Rock. You've seen pictures some of you may have seen it in person, that gold-domed mosque that sits directly on top of this very site. It is said in tradition that the stone that is covered by the Dome of the Rock there 
the stone itself is the stone upon which Abraham laid Isaac for that fateful offering. According to rabbinic legend, that stone is the foundation stone from which all of the earth was formed. That is a way of saying that this is a pivotal story in the history of the Jewish people. And in fact, in our own history as well. For us to look at it and think that it can be easily understood, easily embraced, is to do Abraham and ourselves a disservice. We minimize the nature of his dilemma. Abraham did not love Isaac any less than you and I love our children. Abraham loved Isaac maybe even more than we can perceive with the love that we have in our hearts for our children. Because for Abraham, if you remember, Isaac was given to him as an old man. As this surprise, caring gesture from God who said, I will populate the world with your kin to the point that you're not going to be able to keep up with all of those who call themselves of your family. But you know, of course, that Abraham lived within a culture of sacrifice, animal sacrifice, of course. That was a part of what he was used to being around. But you know as well, don't you, that Abraham, who did not own, as we discussed last week, a foot of the land upon which he spent his life, that he was around other cultures that believed in human sacrifice. The idea of it is far beyond what we can imagine. But if you served a God such as Moloch or Baal, it was not uncommon for you out of your reverence for that God and pleading that God's help in your life to take your firstborn child and offer that child as a burnt offering to that God. In fact, I have read this past week that it is very likely that there was some kind of mechanical structure that had been formed to look like this image of Moloch in this valley just outside of what is now Jerusalem and uh, was then basically Mount Moriah. And this structure would have a child placed in its arms and then rotate into this 
terrible fire that would consume the child. I have intentionally not put any images of this up on our wall, but the mental images are almost too much to bear. In Jeremiah, the, 32, the 32nd chapter, and the 35th verse, it says here, they set up their abominations in the house that bears my name. This is God speaking through that prophet. They defiled it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnon to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination, causing Judah to sin. Do you hear what's being said by Jeremiah there? That it's not the other cultures that have become just entangled in this child sacrifice, but the people, the Hebrew people, have begun to do the very same thing in this valley, Gehenna in Hebrew, in Greek, Gehenna. Does that remind you of Jesus speaking of Gehenna? A terrible, terrible and tragic situation in which in which even the king certain kings of Judah would offer their own children in sacrifice Abraham he listened for God he talked to God have you ever asked yourself how did he hear from God? We read the scripture and it seems so very clear that God spoke to him directly so that perhaps audibly that he could hear what God was saying to him. And I ask you the question, is that the way that, that God speaks to you? It's not the way that God speaks to me. God does speak to me in my mind and in my heart at certain times in such a straightforward manner that there is no question what God is seeking for me to hear. Do you imagine that Abraham was different than you and I? John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, always was listening for God's voice in his heart and in his mind. Do you know how he detected what God was saying to him? Methodists call it the quadrilateral. It's, it is more something that Methodist historians have put together. But if you look in his writings, John Wesley reveals that he looks to Scripture first and foremost. But then he tests Scripture with the traditions of the church, those that have written about Scripture. And then he tests that with his own experience in his life. And finally, that he uses the good logic that God has given and his reason 
begins to put in his mind and his heart what God says to him. I don't know if it was that way with Abraham, but I have a feeling it wasn't so different than what you and I experience. And Abraham, as he went through his life, was observing the cultures around him offering their, to their gods what was inconceivable in his mind until he realized that maybe their offerings were greater than his tithe. And he thought to himself and heard within his heart and in his mind God speaking to him and saying, Take your son Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him to me. Now this is a part of the puzzle that I'm still trying to put together. But can you imagine in Abraham's mind that he would have heard God say this and that he would have said nothing to Sarah and nothing to Isaac as this began to be played out because he felt that it was necessary for him to trust God so much that he would offer the very thing upon which the world was dependent the life of Isaac to populate the planet. Can you imagine as it comes to that very last moment and Isaac seeing all of a sudden what was coming down and the knife moving in his direction and perhaps even Isaac letting out a shriek as all of a sudden it occurs to Abraham, it doesn't have to be this way. The angel speaking, Abraham, Abraham. And his answering, I am here. And God praises him for what is an enormous act of faith but saves the life of this precious one and points him toward that ram caught in the thicket. Soren Kierkegaard, a 19th century Danish philosopher and preacher, wrote a short book entitled Fear and Trembling. The entirety of the book is about this story. Of Abraham and Isaac. The Hebrew people call it Akidah, the binding of Isaac. And in his thinking about the story, Soren says that perhaps there are several scenarios that could be playing out. Scenario one, 
is that Isaac lunges at Abraham and begs for mercy and for his life. And that in this instance, Abraham, loving God as he does, takes the blame for what's going on. In order that Isaac might not think that God would do such a thing to him. But that Abraham takes that blame. Saying, do you think this is God's command? This is my desire. Scenario two. Abraham and Isaac journey in complete silence. As they walk toward this sacrifice. And as the narrative unfolds. The whole idea of it is so overwhelming to Abraham that from the point that he grabbed his knife and lifted it above Isaac, his life was never the same. It scarred him forever. And he carried it to his dying day. Scenario number three. Abraham concludes that he wrongly believed that God told him to murder Isaac. And frankly, to tell you the truth, this sounds a little bit like what I'm suggesting in the story that I shared just a few moments ago. Scenario number four. Abraham fails to act. That somehow, in the midst of doing this, Isaac is a willing participant, finally, when he realizes what is going on. And Abraham has so shared the nature of God with Isaac that when Isaac sees Abraham lift the knife to inflict that fateful pain and Isaac's death, that Abraham refuses to do it. But because Abraham refused to do it, Isaac loses his faith because he sees the wavering of the heart of Abraham. Now, you may be asking yourself, why in the world would we even consider all of this? Because you and I don't think about this story. Not to the degree that it deserves to be a part of our lives this story will always remain opaque. There will be a part of it that is mysterious now through a glass darkly, but then face to face we may understand one day. But it is very difficult for you and I if we stare into the darkness of this story. I love St. Teresa of Avila's words, she was a 16th century Carmelite nun. And uh, she, as the story goes, was riding on her horse and fell off at the edge of a river that was swollen by rain and was almost swept downstream to her own demise. And when she was able to regain her footing and get back up on dry ground, her comment was, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, it is no wonder why you have so few. 
You may be thinking to yourself about your own life and the difficulties that you've had to bear. And they control us. It is possible that we can be so fixed on these things that they can take all control, robbing us even of our faith. I've wondered to myself on this story, if God was not in some way living out through Abraham his own sacrifice of Jesus, which was far yet in the future at the time of Abraham. Can you imagine this occurring? God looking into the life of Abraham and thinking to himself, he loves so purely, he trusts so completely, he is a person of such faith. How would he handle it if he were going to be in the situation that I anticipate being in? And now we know his willingness only stopped by the precious hand of God. The writer of Hebrews seems to understand all of this uh, as he reflects on the nature of who Jesus is. He talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See God, I have come to do your will, O God. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Over in the 11th chapter of Hebrews we find these words, By faith Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom we had been told, It is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Speaking, of course, of not only Isaac, but Jesus as well. Of course, we know that Jesus was a willing participant in this. Do you remember the prayer that Jesus prayed at Gethsemane? Let this cup pass, Father, but nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. When you and I think about this story, we need to think about 
the deep nature of sacrifice. In Abraham's life, as a man of faith, in Jesus' life, as the Son of God, and in our lives, people who call ourselves followers of Christ. Do you remember the young man that came up to Jesus in all of his wealth and his fancy garments that no doubt he had on? And he asked Jesus the question, how might I enter eternal life? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. And what are they, he said, that I might keep them? And Jesus repeats to him the very things that he knows that the man already knows. He's been trained in it in Judaism from his earliest days. That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That you should respect and honor your parents. That you should not murder. That you should uh, give of your life in truthfulness, not in deceit, in relationships. And that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And the man said, and I've done all of these things. And Jesus looks at him and says, Give of what you own. Divest yourself of your riches and give to the poor. And then come and follow me. And with that challenge, we do not know the rest of the story but assumed that it was too much of a challenge for the young man, what Jesus was putting before him to do. You and I must listen in order to hear God's will in our lives. Will Williman, who is now a retired bishop, a retired Methodist bishop, was just a few years back the dean of the chapel at Duke University. And he would on occasion go with groups and sometimes send groups of students on mission trips. And one of the students that was a part of the campus ministry association there came back so inspired by this foreign mission trip that she had been on that she decided and shared with Will Williman that she wanted to become a missionary herself. Well, Bishop Williman was happy for her that she had come to this discovery in her heart. But the parents of this young girl, they called and requested to meet with Will Williman. And when they got to his office, they began to berate him at having led their daughter off course and said to him, it is fine and good for her to go on a trip, but you should never have prompted her to think that she should be a missionary herself. We have raised her with such care. She is a pre-law student and she knows 
that this is what she wants to do. And Will Willimon, at a pause in the conversation, just simply looked at them and said, I'm not the one who carried her down to the altar and had her baptized. You're the ones who did that. And this is something that God is setting in motion, not me. What is it that God wishes to set in motion in our lives? I mean, think about it. How many things do we simply discount because they are bigger than what we could ever imagine ourselves to be or to do? God is asking not only Abraham what he was willing to sacrifice, but he is asking us as well. Are we listening? Are we listening?